Hello, and welcome to the Cherry Hills Church Podcast. I'm Luke Martin, and with me as always is our co-host, Jenny Elliott. In this podcast series, we're responding to questions you've asked about prayer. If you have a question about prayer and you want to submit it to us, we would love to know what you are asking. You can visit our website, cherryhillsfamily.org slash God, and click the tab that says questions about prayer to send us a question. Our goal is to wrestle with some of the questions we all have about the theology and super practical practices of prayer. So today we're addressing some questions all related and similar in a way. We sort of group these under the theme of why prayer matters and what it actually does. So our first question today is, why does prayer matter? People say I prayed and God gave me or God did, but what about people who prayed and God didn't? Okay, so are any of us not asking this question? Uh, If you're not, then you have more faith than me because I wrestle with this question frequently. So here's what I'll say, and Jenny and I will try to answer this, but I also want to address an underlying issue that I think this uh, surfaces. So I'd say that prayer matters for three reasons. One, it's a time of focused communion with God. Uh, It's also a time of intentional formation to be like God. And then it's a time of surrendered participation uh, within God's work. So that's communion, that's formation, that's mission, all together in prayer. So to be with Jesus, to learn from him how to live like him. Prayer is, in that sense, a microcosm of uh, discipleship. So I want to say more about the the underlying question, but first I want to hear from you, Jenny. Uh, How would you begin to answer this? Well, put simply, prayer matters because Jesus instructed us to do it and modeled how to do it. How about that for a Sunday school answer? (laughs) Anything Jesus did himself is something I want to model. So simply put, do you believe him? Do you trust him? Do you believe that what he asks of you is for your good and his glory? I love the passage in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 16, assume a few things. Jesus says, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. He didn't say, if you choose to do these things, then you do it like this. He said, when you do these things. In verse six, he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. I don't know about you, Luke, but to think that the father sees me when I come to him is invitation enough for me. Yeah, it's a beautiful invitation. Uh, And at the same time, it's an essential part of the way of Jesus. So the way of Jesus, what we call the Christian faith, is not a a choose-your-own-adventure situation. Uh, Our culture today is a late modern culture, right, where we're quite comfortable with de-institutionalized, personal and private, highly customizable spirituality. And that's not a temptation just for, for hipsters in New York or something. That's the air that all of us are breathing. So the way of Jesus is a habitus, which is a sociological term that means a a trained or a formed disposition to a certain way of life, a set of paradigms and practices. So to follow Jesus means we take all together his teaching and practices, his sexual ethics, his instructions on money, his teaching on enemy love, which everyone likes until you have to do it, uh, as well as his practice of prayer. So you know, with all the grace in the world, I think we have to say still that this is a matter of obedience uh, to a holistic way of life where we sometimes are asked to practice things, things like sexual purity, generosity, radical forgiveness, and prayer that we might not understand or even really believe is good or sensible. That faith isn't uh, a certain cognitive measure of certainty and understanding. It's allegiance. It's trust. 
So the underlying aspect to this, and it's, it's a bit off the rails of the question, but I think it's important because if we find ourselves unconvinced by the reasonableness of prayer, as I personally often do, right? I'm thinking, show me the data, convince me with the research. Uh, if we find ourselves in that spot, we're going to have to resolve in our hearts to commit ourselves to prayer as a demonstration of our relational allegiance to Jesus and to his way of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I love that question. And I know we haven't totally covered every dimension in that question, but we have a few more like it. And I want to get to that as well. So our next question is what power does prayer have in the spiritual realm? In other words, if God's going to do what God's going to do according to his will anyway, how do our prayers make things happen? Someone asked a similar question. If God is sovereign, why does he ask us to ask him for what we need and want? I have heard some ideas on that point too, are asking just as one aspect of relationship development with our creator. But if that were prayer's purpose, wouldn't scripture be more clear about it? And we could spend uh, days delving into these questions. That's good. Um, this question is really about divine causality and human agency about determinism and sovereignty. So some super deep stuff. Okay, Luke, you may have to repeat that sentence. <laughs> super deep stuff. That's the, that's the important part. <laughs> but first off, if you really want to get into it, there's like, you know, a million books, articles. You can dig up a library worth of stuff on this. Uh, but I just finished reading an incredible little book. It's actually a series of letters that C.S. Lewis wrote to a fictional friend named Malcolm. Uh, it's called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. And if you know C.S. Lewis, his story, he's uh, a brilliant scholar. He came to faith gradually later in life after years of uh, skepticism. Then went on to become one of the most uh, widely read Christian scholars of the 20th century. So he's got some great uh, insights written that are, you know, it's written in a very personal way in letters to Malcolm. So I don't get royalties or anything for saying that, but there's my plug for the book. Uh, Lewis says that people who believe their prayers were, were answered will inevitably be told that Post hoc is not propter hoc. Uh, and if you, you know that Latin phrase, that's a logical fallacy that just because something happens subsequent to an action, just because it happens after the fact, it doesn't make that action the cause. So in other words, as Lewis says, we face the reasonable objection that just because something happened after you prayed for it does not logically or scientifically establish prayer as the cause. It might have happened anyways, right? He goes on to say that cause and effect is the wrong framing of the question itself. That prayer is not about cause and effect. So he uses the analogy of a marriage proposal, which I think is helpful. Uh, when a man gets on one knee and pops the question, does his request cause uh, his response? Does it act upon her will? Of course not, right? There's something far more mysterious and relational at play than this cause and effect analysis can account for. So in prayer as in a marriage proposal, it is not as if one party is the agent and the other the patient, one part of the cause and the other the dependent. God is absolute being, and we are derivative being. Yet in our creation as dependents, God has also made us agents with him. So I could go on and on here about this, but I'll just stop and say, if you don't follow any of that, I'm sort of just saying it's, it's a mystery. So I don't know. Help me out, Jenny. <laughs> There is mystery to this. Absolutely. But what I keyed on in that question was really the power um, that prayer has in the spiritual realm. And I was immediately taken to this prayer that I love that Jesus prays in John chapter 17. He's praying to the father just before he's betrayed and arrested. 
And he says many things. So please go read it. But he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And verse seven says, and now that they know that everything you have given me is from you. He goes on in the chapter to say, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is not only a prayer to the father. It is a sending prayer for us. This whole thing gets me so fired up. And I know that it's a little bit of a tangent here, but the them right there includes us. There is so much power that Jesus prayed these words to his father. And we can pray these words to the father that it's this, we are joining together with him. And I just love that prayer still has this kind of this, this specific prayer still has this calling for us today. And there's so much power in the fact that he left the spirit to intercede for us, meaning that when he indwelled us with the Holy spirit, he had allowed us to draw near to God anytime the person of the Holy spirit in prayer and in relationship. And Jesus models that relational prayer right here in John chapter 17. Yeah. Preach on Jenny. Um, our final question for today has to do with promises of God. So here it is. Many scriptures talk of God being faithful to his promises and many examples of prayer involve the author clinging to those promises. But many of those promises were made to specific individuals or people or for a specific event or purpose. Which of the promises can we reasonably cling to today, understanding that everything doesn't always turn out okay for everyone, and sometimes God doesn't intervene as we think his promises imply that he will? This is such a great question, and several of these questions have alluded to the same thing. What do we do when God doesn't answer our prayers, and what do we make of his promises then? Um, Our first son named Luke, ironically, which means light, by the way, which I think is so cool, was born healthy and nine pounds in the summer of 2003. He was beautiful and I could not believe God would give me such a rich blessing. Everything about him was perfect. And I was praising God for his beautiful gift of my son, weeping and praying and journaling. And I have lots of words written um, right when we brought him home. And when Luke was just about a week old, he began to get sick. Next thing I know, he was life flighted to St. Louis Children's Hospital. Thousands of people, including missionary friends from around the world, We're fasting and praying for my little boy. And I would go to his side and pray and sing and rub his little head and believing with all of my being that God had the power to make him well. But days later, I laid my head, my hands on that sweet little head, washing it for the final time and praying him into the hands of Jesus. And to this day, I don't understand the why behind this decision God made. But I had to decide this. Were his promises still true? was God who he said he was. And over the course of the weeks and the months, I discovered by his grace (laughs) that even though my world was turned upside down, his was not. He was still seated on the throne. He was still my creator. He was still my redeemer. And he made a way for me and my son. And no circumstance, including death, could keep me from Jesus. The path to him was ever nearer and the heaven became a daily tangible reality. I know this doesn't answer the question for the listener, because honestly, sometimes we don't have the answer, but I have found that with certainty, I can trust the only one who does have the answers. Thanks for sharing that, Jenny. Yeah. Um, And that's a beautiful story. And I think it's almost, you know, an injustice to try to theorize in the midst of the reality of suffering and seemingly unanswered or answered unfavorably, you know, the prayers that we pray. Um, 
so I don't want to do too much work here other than what, what Jenny has already done by offering uh, her own testimony. Uh, but I am reminded that, you know, Jesus himself did not receive everything his human will desired. When he prayed in Gethsemane to be delivered from the cross, he was not. So Paul writes yet still beautifully in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, this is verses 18 through 22. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you Stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our heart as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So I think that, you know, our comfort in the present is that Jesus himself has experienced the same no that we seem to experience. But our hope for the future is that in him who was not delivered from the cross, all God's promises are yes and amen. Jesus is the foretaste of the resurrection life that pervades the age to come. But we still wait on its coming, his coming. We've not yet fully experienced the yes and amen of Jesus, though by his mercies, he gives us at times a foretaste in our prayers. But how incredible (laughs) that one day we will fully experience that yes and amen. (laughs) Can't wait for those of us in Christ. Um, We appreciate you all so much sending in these questions and we want to see even more of them. There is no wrong question. We will be back next week with more questions about prayer. So let me sign off with some food for thought from Bishop Callistos Ware of the Eastern Orthodox Church. He writes, We see that it is not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. Thanks for listening.